1: Welcome to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. This is Leanne Meyer, and I truly want to welcome you back to our show. The last couple of shows we have been trying to focus on the crisis that is facing us right now with the COVID-19 crisis. Um, Earth is facing one of the greatest pandemics in, uh, in an ever undulating history of infection, disease, war, and famine interspersed with times of bounty, medical and economic advancement and relative peace. Today, the world holds its collective breath over COVID-19. While most of the planet's population are being asked to step back, healthcare workers are stepping forward to be the main line of defense between a virus and the human race. These world sheroes are showing us the way to change poison to medicine through passion of mission and desire to help. Dr. Stason Keating, professor of nursing at um, New York University, approached me over the weekend to share the stories and messages of people on the front lines of this pandemic. We took that information and did a show on Monday, March 30th, featuring the nurses and their stories and some possible resources. Today, Dr. Gary Yu is a college colleague of Dr. Stason, and they are both joining me today to look at the epidemiology of this crisis and what steps need to be taken from here. So, Dr. Stason Keating, um, could you just give us a brief bio of your background how you got into um, uh, being interested in in helping with this topic.
2: Sure. I I started out really uh, working with cancer patients um, and uh, older adults and just really became more and more um, involved and passionate about global health and um, public health and really uh, primary prevention and um, you know uh, health promotion. So I really started gravita- gravitating, like several years ago, towards um, understanding more about public health epidemiology, you know, and just looking at uh, global trends in healthcare.
1: Thank you. Um, a very noble profession and right now so very important. Um, I also want to welcome Dr. Gary Yu. He is also a colleague and an epidemiologist at New York University, and I'd like to welcome you and thank you for coming, uh, share a little bit about your bio background and then also, um, uh, what has pulled you into this crisis.
3: Yes. Thank you so much for having me. So my name is Gary Yu and, um, uh, I actually, um, I'm a public health researcher, but um, I, I have my master's in epidemiology, and I have my doctorate in public health and biostatistics, and really what got me interested was um, listening to, um, you know, I'm an avid listener of local public radio, and so this past Sunday from 10 to 11 a.m. on local um, WNYC public radio, there was a very interesting segment called uh, Dispelling, Dispelling the Myths of um, Armchair Epidemiology and Half-Baked mm-hmm science, and they actually talked about the rise of these pseudo-epidemiologists or so-called these coronavirus influencers. And I'm actually, you know, I feel like I'm actually guilty as well because I'm not an immunologist or a virologist, and I'm not actually, you know, I don't have any medical training. So I actually feel like it's really important um, to um, dispel some of the the myths out there um, that's being uh, promoted and promulgated by some of these pseudo-epidemiologists or some of these to all uh, uh, so-called coronavirus influencers.
1: Oh, that is fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, Dr. Keating, if you could uh, share a little bit about what it is you're sharing with your students uh, about uh, this
2: topic? We're sharing uh, so much right now, as you can imagine, with our students. Um, You know, just in general, I'm just so happy to be teaching public health and applied epidemiology with Gary. Um, you know, I'm very passionate about nurses as healthcare providers, taking care of the public, focusing on population. Uh, you know, I really feel that nurses should be focusing on understanding data surrounding trends in population and community health. You know, we should be observing what's going on and take positive action to improve health com- outcomes for the largest number of people. Um, in our course together, Gary and I worked uh, with uh, doctoral students, with nursing students to help introduce them to the importance of thinking about uh, their populations and identifying the problems that arise from the data, thinking about how they could, as clinicians, frame quality improvements and, um, you know, complete these quality initiatives within their own clinical settings to make real differences. Uh, many of our students were in clinical manager positions. Um, And they were really able to impact change, to notice problems, um, to intervene. Gary teaches the students about the research methods and the importance of the statistical measurements, which is really, you know, the foundation of epidemiology and public health. And I keep working with the students to have them relate what they're learning and apply that knowledge to the clinical settings that they're in. So Gary and I work well together to design this course and to bring um, real meaning to Nurses as clinicians. I would like to say that, um, you know, I think epidemiology may not have been well understood to many people before this whole COVID crisis, just like PPE wasn't in the common vernacular of people. And now, you know, just about everybody probably knows, you know, what PPE is and how we lack PPE. People get it now, it's a little late. You know, epidemiology is focused on the science of public health and the specific methods that can help epidemiologists who are like detectives almost, right? They're engaged in an organized way. They're looking for the first case of the coronavirus. They're looking for the source of the outbreak. They want to help um, those most at risk, right? And they have the ability to intervene and to stop or contain the problem. In this type of thing, like we're dealing with right now, you want to break that chain of infection. Right now, we're told to isolate, right, or maintain a social distance. Um, This is epidemiology at work, right? Let's break that chain of infection, stop that virus, stop the ability of the virus to jump from person to person and replicate within the lower respiratory tract of people. This is an invisible organism, and I think that's why maybe, you know, people are kind of a little confused in our society because you can't see it, but it is obviously fierce and mighty. Um, The experts are predicting that the infection rates and death toll will be staggering. Uh, I would add to that, though, um, and I actually just got a text before we got on this call You know, a friend of mine asking, you know, because I have a relative that's on the front line, um, a friend of mine, her cousin was just put on a ventilator within the last 30 minutes in the hospital where my relative works. And so this person was looking for information. So things are starting to get more and more real to, Mm -hmm. I mean, they were always real to me, but now, you know, getting a text, can I check on this person because they were just put on the vent. Um, is really kind of eye-popping for me to see that text, but I will Mm -hmm. say if you're a person that loses your own loved one to this disease, um, we're looking at numbers and we see, you know, there's great data out there from the CDC and Johns Hopkins, but if you lose a loved one, all you have to do is see the number one, right? Just just the number one is going to be staggering and life-altering to you. So, you know, this global trend in COVID-19 disease is obviously beyond troubling. Uh, We've had this in the U.S. problems before. We had the Spanish flu pandemic. You know, we had concerns in 2009 with H1N1. Other countries have suffered from SARS and Ebola outbreaks, and they've learned from that. The U.S. was spared during those outbreaks, but perhaps the U.S. Uh, felt it was invincible, but obviously it it was not. So we are in a crisis. Um, unfortunately, there is no longer time to reflect on past outbreaks that we've had. You know, we need to try and be smart and be prepared next time, but now we're dealing, you know, we are in crisis mode, and we're dealing with this kind of tsunami of coronavirus. Um, what Gary and I would, you know, why we're so grateful to you, Leanne, for having us is, you know, we really want to um, kind of put an eye, put the public eye to thinking beyond the U.S., thinking beyond politics. You know, there's a lot of um, good lessons learned coming out of the East, so, you know, Wuhan has had success, China, other parts of China have had tremendous success, Taiwan has had tremendous success. And so, you know, we want to take, um, we want to be logical. A place like Taiwan, you know, they look to the scientists, they look to the epidemiologists, they, look, they trust their government. You know, they, they have a core message that comes out and the people listen to that core message. So, you know, we really like to kind of talk about the need to be open-minded, to tap into science that's coming out from all places, and that includes. Um, you know, science coming out of the East. So perhaps Gary, uh, you know, would like to jump in because he's um, tracked this and he knows a lot about this.
1: That'd be great. I just wanted to mention, I'm so glad that you talked about the um, knowledge and the education of the nurses who are in the doctoral program. Um, I've been trying to reinforce because so many people uh, in our country, particularly, Don't see nurses unless you have been sick or had a loved one sick or you know a nurse or love a nurse. Um, You might have a little bit of an idea of what nurses are doing, but we've really moved beyond that role of handmaiden where I think a lot of people still put us in the background, and I want to make sure that people know that nurses now are very much an integral part of the the partnership between doctors nurses lab all of the other areas of of um healthcare and healthcare workers so i'm really glad that you put that in i also wanted to ask you um <clears throat> with the other um uh Uh, outbreaks that we've had you mentioned spanish flu and the h1n1 and some of the other SARS some of the other things do you think that our country was more prepared in those previous uh, outbreaks that perhaps we might have had more uh, negative outcome had we not been as prepared
2: yeah i'm going to let the epidemiologist jump in okay okay great
1: (laughs) so dr you go ahead
3: yeah. So, you know, I first want to say that I want to sort of preface, preface and make a disclaimer that whatever I'm about to say, that I make sure I properly cite any sources to back up any of the statistics, any of the numbers, the facts, so that if listeners have any questions, comments, or concerns, that they can actually go back to the original source and hold me accountable to what I'm about to say. And that's really what I learned from this um, uh, this local public radio program this past weekend, was that, you know, there's a lot of Um, sort of false information being spread um, currently, you know, online. And so it's just really important for listeners to be able to distinguish, um, you know, what what are the half-truths from uh, the noise and basically this idea that people are are giving out sort of less than perfect information um, in a sort of, in an environment of having no information right now. And so, you know, is that actually good or bad? So we, I, I would call on the listeners to actually, you know, listen very carefully and, and to sort of ask themselves what, what, our agenda, what, what our agenda is as we're saying these things so that they can actually hold us accountable. And, you know, I'm going to make sure that, you know, everything that I say, like every sentence and all the numbers and all the facts that I properly source sort of where I'm getting this from before I start. Yeah, I just want to put you. that out there.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. And if you could send those sources to me, I'm starting a um, a, a portion of my website that's going to be called COVID Corner. And I'd like mm-hmm. to be able to put those uh, resources out to um, anybody who's interested in in uh,
3: following Absolutely. them. Absolutely.
1: Thank you. So go ahead. Talk to us about where things are at now.
3: I would just, you know, point out um, just you know, a couple of quick pointers with the, um, with the situation in Wuhan and how the, um, the medical staff has, have done such a great job keeping um, the, situa- the situation uh, under control now. So, you know, again, if you look at the, the Chinese media, um, from Chinese media sources, the fact that they haven't had any cases of coronavirus for now, for the, for the past five days now, I think is very promising. They're starting to lift some of the um, social controls that they have on the city, they're starting to restart bus lines and subway lines throughout the city, um, highways um, linking the city and also the province, to the rest of the, the country now. So it seems like life is slowly but surely, you know, getting back to normal.
1: And the good news about that especially is um, the uncertainty of knowing when does life return to normal? It's almost like um, if we're on a two-week, um, uh, we're sick and we know we're going to be out for two or three weeks, um, you can kind of prepare yourself for that and you can do anything for three weeks. But if that three weeks could possibly stretch to 18 months, people get really scared. So I, I think that's really an important part of this. So um, just go ahead and, and talk from your point of view. What, what is it that you want our audience to know? And this is a worldwide audience, including nurses, but also every other uh, area of healthcare workers.
3: Yeah, I just would uh, throw out some some quick, um, just some quick things that I found really interesting. Looking at um, what's been presented on on the Chinese media, you know, something that I found really interesting was that you know around 90 to 91% of the uh, patients with the coronavirus were actually treated with a hybrid, uh, tailored treatment of. Western medicine plus supplemental traditional Chinese um, medicinal, medicinal herbs um, in addition to Western medicine, which I found really, really fascinating, and I thought that that was something that the Western media wasn't really reporting on, um, and that's something that, you know, also it could be due to the fact that most of the reporting that's coming out of China has been in, in Mandarin, and so they have just recently started to ramp up the translation of some of their um, news segments, so I thought that was... Uh, a really interesting key point that you know some of their new novel treatment plans—not only just the tr- traditional Chinese medicine to uh, alleviate some of the symptom burden from some of the the more toxic um, Western medications that they're using or some of the procedures they're doing—but also you know new innovative ways of respiratory support and also experimental plasma therapy as well.
1: Say more about the respiratory support.
3: Well, I, I you know again I'm not a. Um, a medical expert or anything, and this is just based on my quick glance of, um, of what, uh, what I've seen on the Chinese media and the brief mentioning of it, of the, just the phrase on Chinese media. I would actually encourage those of, uh, of the listeners that have more of a medical background than I do and more of clinical experience, they can actually go to this website that, um, you know, the ex-founder of Alibaba, Jack Ma, who has a foundation, who basically um, decided to create this website based on his Alibaba Cloud platform to actually disseminate some of the successful Wuhan uh, treatment plans and treatment protocols and standard operating procedures to the rest of the world. So it's covid-19.alibabacloud.com, and you can actually download the report and you can actually read in depth some of the different types of respiratory supports that they're trying, some of the different types of plasma therapy, and also some of the different types of uh, traditional Chinese herbal medication that they um, are claiming that they, they, that they that they've tried on ninety um, percent of the coronavirus patients that they're having, um, that, that that they're claiming as well as to having success with um, with the amelioration of symptoms.
1: That's interesting because there was a rumor that went around on Facebook. That um, what cured a lot of the people in Wuhan was tea, drinking tea. And I'm wondering if the the herbal aspect of it brought people to think that it was tea specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Interesting.
0: I wondered where well, that I, came I from.
3: Yeah, I can't speak <laughs> about tea, and I'm again I don't know anything about traditional Chinese medicine as well. But you know, if people are interested. You know, they can actually download the report, and they actually list all the formularies, all the all the formularies of all the traditional Chinese herbs that went into each of the different tailored plans of whether or not people were mild, moderate, or severe, at what stage of the symptom—early on, during the, the during the early on during the onset, while they were battling while while they were battling the disease, while they were nearing recovery—so they had different sort of Chinese traditional medicine treatment plans, and they actually list all the different amounts, all the different types of Chinese herbs. And I don't know, maybe there were. Some ingredients that were also common in in some of the tea products. You know, I'm, I'm I'm not familiar with that, but I would definitely encourage the readers. If you're interested, you know, go to that website, download the report, look more more into some of the formularies of what the traditional Chinese herbs that they use. You know, would, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: I'm I'm curious. Um, also, the this is such a different. Um, a virus because of the fact that it sheds before many people are having symptoms of it. And I'm wondering if there's anything you can shed a light on that. How or, or why is it that this virus is so different in that way from other um, viruses we have dealt with?
3: I don't know if you know, if Dr. Keaton wants to um, talk about this more because she has much more clinical experience than I do. I, you know, again, this is just my quick glance at what the Chinese media is reporting. But I think Dr. Keaton probably has more insight about this clinically than I do. Yeah, I would, Dr. Keaton.
2: Well, the things that I'm reading, right, because it's the novel coronavirus, so there isn't a lot of information out there on that, and I think, you know, um, that's the problem, right? Some people are getting the virus and they're walking around and they don't even realize that they have symptoms of the virus. Um, who was I? I? was talking to uh, somebody who, I think, actually, I think this was a story um, on New York Times when uh, Dr. Colleen Smith was able to actually get Times reporters to uh, track her through the E B because the, this particular hospital was, like, um, really kind of in the storm, right, before other hospitals were even uh, under siege. We're not under the big siege yet, but the, uh, the issue is, you know, they would get people to come into the hospital and maybe they weren't even a suspect COVID patient. They might have come in for some other kind of uh, ailment. But then when they did a scan of them, they found that the lungs were consistent with what they would call COVID lungs. So I think Leanne, it's like, I don't think really anybody can tell you yet, you know, um, you know how the virus operates. They do know that people that um, are positive for the virus, right, it could take up to 14 days before it actually exhibits signs I just read today. That on, you know, usually the latest point will be like 11.5 days, but it can take up to 14 days before you even kind of exhibit signs. I think the average is about five days, though. But there's just so many aspects of it that we don't know. How come some people get it? They don't really know that they have it. Um, Some people get a pretty significant case of it, but they're able to stay home and recover. It's these people that you know, get a really bad case of the virus. And um, I was just reading Atul Gawande's article on this. You know, from a science perspective, they kind of want to know, is it dose dependent? You know, we're very worried about our healthcare workers, right, because they have the most exposure, right? So they have the biggest dose. So is that going to make an impact? There's just so many unknowns that we Mm -hmm. need to share information and study this, Um, you know, and this is what's very perplexing and very, uh, in Boston, they've tested a lot of their healthcare workers and a lot of them are coming back positive. So Mm -hmm. if those people are exposed over and over again to COVID patients, you know, are they likely to get very sick? I, I think time will tell, unfortunately. Mm-hmm.
1: And it makes a lot of sense. Again, I don't know how much um, people really understand. You mentioned the PPE, which, of course, is personal protective equipment. Um, the, the lack of that, and I don't know if either of you have any insights into why we're so deficient in all of these things. Um, I guess the things that I have heard is because so many Hospitals uh, operate through computers, and they're on a just-in-time ordering system. So they know as an average over a period of time how much they use in their facilities. And it's like when they're just getting to that point of being a little bit low is when they order and get more. So um, you never have, you know, the amount of PPE available that would be needed for this kind of thing when you're going to have anywhere up to 200,000-plus uh, patients that are involved. Um, I'd like to come well, back and talk about that. We, uh, I'm going to hold that because we're just right up against a break. Let's um, go on break, and then we can come back, and I'd like both of you to maybe uh, talk a little bit about that issue. And um, so this is Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse exploring the world of nursing. I am Leanne Meyer, and I'm here today talking with Dr. Stason Keating, who is a professor of nursing at New York University, and Dr. Gary Yu, who is an epidemiologist at New New York University, also. And we'll be back in just a few minutes.
0: Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. WomenInHealthcare.org, a national nonprofit, is our newest partner at Once a Nurse. It is among the most rapidly growing professional development groups for women in healthcare today. Through healthcare education, professional development, mentorship community and a focus on self, the organization empowers women with the tools needed to advance their careers. They use initiatives to break down barriers within organizations and equip women with the tools needed to open a powerful force for gender parity. 80% of the healthcare workforce is female, with nurses a massive majority of that percentage. But less than 20% of leadership is female. Join womeninhealthcare.org as they help all women of all ages and all levels rise up. Use code HEALTHPROS to receive $50 off the annual membership fee and receive discounted pricing for events, free resources, webinars, and a substantial discount for our annual Leadership Summit on October twenty second, 2020 womeninhealthcare.org to be where you want to be in the world of healthcare.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America.
0: You are listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. To reach the program today, Please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Leanne Voice America at gmail.com. Now back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse.
1: This is Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing, and I am Leanne Meyer. Thank you so much for returning to, with us uh, after the break. We are talking today about COVID-19 epidemiology in a nutshell, and what do we do from here. My guests are Dr. Stason Keating, who is a professor of nursing at New York University, and Dr. Gary Yu, epidemiologist at New York University. We've just been talking about some of the aspects of, of um uh, epidemiology, the people have uh, kind of become uh, armchair epidemiologists, and without any real basis in science to back them up, they're putting some pretty bold statements out there that just end up being very confusing for patients and even healthcare workers. So um, we were just talking about uh, masks and personal protective equipment, And I wondered, um, Dr. Keating, if you could talk a little bit about um, how can it be in a country like ours? That seems to be the question we keep asking. We have so much wealth. How can it be that we are so lacking in this equipment that is so necessary, not just for the patients but also for the nurses?
2: Uh, I mean, that's a great question, Leanne. Um, You know, there have been um, individuals uh, his name. One person that comes to mind is Larry Brilliant. He's uh-huh. an epidemiologist. Actually, he's credited with, uh, you know, helping to eradicate smallpox. Um, I think it was in 2004. You know, people have been uh, predicting that a pandemic in our future was likely. Bill Gates, who does a lot of global work, he had a TED talk. Just two years ago, saying we should be ready for a pandemic. You know, we need to listen to people that are in the know, like epidemiologists, like somebody that's doing out there, doing a lot of global work and working on vaccines and things. We haven't heeded, you know, this advice, and I think we've kind of just, we're not having a problem right now, so we haven't planned for if a problem occurs. I think, actually... Governor Cuomo in New York is doing the best that he can. You know, Mm -hmm. he's doing a good job at trying to prepare for this surge that they expect to come within the next week to possibly three weeks. Um, You know, there's been uh, all this stuff in the media like, oh, equipment's there, but it's missing. It's not. It's just sitting in a warehouse. You know, he's given very good press conferences where he says, You know we're kind of at war, and our frontline workers—they're the soldiers in the front. You know, um, he is trying to purchase things and buy things and put them in a warehouse so that he can prepare for when that big surge does come. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we should uh, we should be looking at. You know, we kind of have to deal with what we have right now. um, I hope going forward that we put better people in place that will help us prepare for a pandemic. Um, right. We, I think we've, I just read today um, that our current administration has done away with, Obama had put in like a pandemic agency, an agency within the government that was just supposed to look at this after, you know, keep with that agency in place after that whole of Ebola thing happened But then, um, you know, that was disbanded in the current administration. So, excuse me. You know, we need um, we need to deal with what we're dealing with right now, Uh, and then going forward. I hope next time we can learn from our mistakes and not and be prepared for when it happens again.
1: It seems like a lot of uh, the challenges are human nature. Um, I've heard in the past that it seems to be um, that as humans, we're more geared to reacting to a problem than we are in <clears throat> pre- preparing for or preventing problems. Um, it's kind of like when that woolly mammoth is coming at us, we know we've got a problem. <laughs> we're trying to figure it out. Um, but we'd like to be able to plan so that we don't have to come face to face with that that creature or that and that monster, <clears throat> um, Doctor. I would also Yu, do you like have... to
3: ask. Yeah, I would ahead. like to add that the 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 response between what the United States has done and what the Chinese government has done in terms of PPEs has been just strikingly. It's just like Correct. night and day, you know. I just want to throw out some of the numbers, you know. By the beginning of March, over sixty-five thousand pieces of medical equipment. Had already been sent to the province surrounding Wuhan, Hubei Province, including medical equipment, ventilators, ECMOs, um, other types of PPEs, including 90, N95 face masks, surgical gowns, gloves, um, goggles, that were transported from all different regions of China to Wuhan. You know, and that also it speaks to the mobilization efforts of, you know, their central government, and you know, and also to plug the sh- shortage of. Of, um, of protected suits, masks, and other medical supplies, they you know they asked, they demanded you know Chinese manufacturers from various other industries to mobilize from you know from from uh, the car sector, from mobile phone makers to the you know state-owned petrochemical companies, and so within a month, from like late June to late February, daily you know just for face masks, daily capacity of face masks rose from eight million to over fifty million. And so, and wow. then they, they took those high volumes of medical supplies, and they basically concentrated and directed it to Wuhan and and Hubei province, the you know the, the most impacted region in uh, in that area for for the coronavirus. So, so basically, the mobilization in terms of what the Chinese government has done versus what the United States is sort of not doing right now is is just striking. It's sort of like like uh, like night and day, to me. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and and again, that's experience, knowledge, understanding of uh, a a very broad um, concept of it. I I think the administration that we have now has talked about, um, you know, who knew medicine was so complicated. Um, Anybody who's involved in medicine knows that. So um, uh, I had also heard that um, China was one of the largest manufacturer of gowns for healthcare uh, uses. Uh, I don't know if you know any truth to that, but I'm wondering if they're still putting out the same number of um, production that they were before for the rest of the world?
3: Mm-hmm. I, you know, Based on what I've quickly glanced through Chinese uh, news media, it seems like they are uh, maintaining that level of production too. And I, w- I would just say that in, in addition to PPE, the, the the sending – something that hasn't really been well told is basically the mobilization of 42,000 medical staff, mm-hmm. which basically is – which was comprised of 330 different medical teams from over 19 different regional, provincial regions and municipalities in China. So they were able to just basically mobilize extra medical staff from different regions and to basically mobilize them and to send them into Wuhan – at a moment's notice, which is similar in the mm-hmm. United States, is sort of like, you know, asking, you know, excess, you know, health workers from states that are less impacted to sort of support the states that are much more heavily impacted, which is
2: just, mm-hmm.
3: you know, the speed at which they did that was also very, very important in helping them control the epidemic early on.
1: Right. Um, things that, that the lay people don't really think about, and I guess I think about it because I've done so much training, is that, you know, once you've moved all these thousands of people to the places where they need to be, they need to be trained with the equipment that that is there. Uh, one ventilator is not the same as another ventilator. Um, you know, just uh, hundreds of different things that uh, have to happen. So it's not just, I think a lot of times people think, well, a doctor's a doctor, a nurse is a nurse. You take them from one place, put them somewhere else, and they're they're perfectly fine. But you even just think about going from your own home to try and work in somebody else's kitchen and trying to find, you know, what you need in that place or how does this um, uh, microwave work compared to something else. It gives you a little bit of an idea of the enormity. Plus, we're trying to bring in. New grad RNs, I've heard, are being pulled into service, and um, some of the um, interns and residents are being asked to come and and do patient care. So, uh, well, this is
2: happening in New York right now with, um, you know, uh, hospitals actually, you know, where a relative of mine works. Um, You know, my relative was working on a certain type of unit, was not in the ICU. But now, almost the entire hospital, has turned into what they call COVID units. Right. So now they're taking nurses from other units, and they're giving them like a two-hour um, kind of crash course, and mm-hmm. they're putting them into these COVID units where patients are ventilated, where patients mm-hmm. are getting strips um, of, you know, sedation drugs. And, uh, you know, it's just, um, it's just not... A, an optimal plan. Another person that I just spoke with yesterday uh, worked at a small hospital, all gone to COVID units pretty much. The hospital is about a 200-bed hospital. Now they've changed it to a 400-bed hospital and the plan is in in coming days to make it into a 600-bed hospital. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, we're kind of like Running by the seat of our pants. If you listen uh, to the nightly debrief from Andrew Cuomo, you know, you get a lot of good information. And, you know, what I learned last night, which I knew already, but it was nice to hear it like so articulated. Uh, New York City, you know, a place like New York City has public hospitals, private hospitals. You know, they all kind of work as independent agents. You know, they're not. They're not sharing medical records. You know, they have their own their their own right. individual agency. But right. because of the magnitude of the problem, they have gotten together these key administrators, and now they're going to work together. So, Wonderful. you know, if one hospital is getting a surge and they're down on certain supplies for the first time, they're going to be calling their colleagues at the next hospital and Mm -hmm. saying, we're down on gloves, or where do you have these? Because if you can give them to us now, we will repay you, you know, when things uh, change. So there's a a very large effort to integrate at least that part of the, you know, supply piece of it when, you know, right now, actually. So Mm -hmm. now, going into this month of April, um, there's finally some cohesiveness and and the need to kind of work together.
1: Um, Dr. Yu, before we move off of the protective equipment, um, there's so much confusion about the masks and what masks are appropriate and which are not. What is the difference between an N95, a surgical mask and just a regular um, cloth mask or a paper mask?
3: Well, I can't um, speak too much about that, but I was, you know, and I, would probably have to defer to Dr. Keenan for her expertise. But I just wanted to uh, uh, chime in on Dr. Keen's point about the coordination of, of medical medical care and the creation of uh, sufficient hospital beds and the additional sure. sort of
0: temporary sure, hospitals ahead.
3: that have to be created. You know, just um, just to give you a sense of Wuhan, Wuhan is a city of 11 million residents. It's a little bit larger than New York City, and they actually created, or they, they actually designated 48 designated hospitals um, and also, cre- you know, in, in addition to creating two 1,000-bed um, hospitals, you know, in 10 days, building it oh. from scratch, bringing the, the total number of available beds, in addition to putting to use other temporary hospitals, including converting a, an exhibition center into a temporary sort of um, living room hospital, with you know, mm. which provided, you know, over... 13,000 beds alone for patients with mild symptoms so that they could stop quarantine so they basically brought the total number of available beds to over 40,000 while prepping another 70,000 beds at quarantine sites so this is the the magnitude of of what they did to basically make sure that the whole medical system was not overwhelmed in such a short amount of time which is just Mm -hmm. you know it's just catastrophic you know.
1: It is. It's amazing. I don't know if uh, I was peripherally involved in helping to get a, a hospital up and running. And we spent years in the planning stages, uh, at least a year in hiring people, uh, just stocking and storage and, you know, having beds in the right places and they all work and linen that go with them. I mean, the the detail of it is absolutely extraordinary. And Uh, Like you were saying, I heard when they were talking about putting those hospitals together in in 10 days, absolutely, my brain went in about six directions simultaneously trying to think, how is that even possible?
3: Yeah, but But, not just one, but two, you know, it's like they mm -hmm. they built not one, but like two two hospitals, another one to follow that just in case the first one wasn't enough. It was just, I mean, Mm -hmm. astounding.
1: I'm curious also about South Korea. It seems to have had an astounding uh, level of success. Do you know anything about what they're doing differently, either of you?
2: I'm not familiar with South Korea.
1: Go ahead. Dr. Keating, go ahead.
2: No, I said I'm not familiar with. Elsewhere. Oh, you're not. I just, oh, I, I thought know. you said you had met. No, somebody. I've read okay. more about what's going on in China and in, uh, Taiwan. Okay. Um, I'm Oops. not familiar with what's happening. Okay. I know that they've had success, but I don't know what it's related to. I
1: guess I have very limited limited also. But what I have heard is they were testing immediately in large amounts. And what that gave them was the data of where are the hotspots, where do they need to focus their attention, where does it seem to be moving, and that sort of thing. And I think, again, if we don't have a lot of faith in um, scientific uh, information, data, uh, what it can do for us, uh, we just don't really appreciate that that can save us a lot of time, effort, and heartache.
2: Well, and that is like a key point, I think, that you bring up. You know, looking to the people that have the scientific knowledge and trusting in science um, and having, like, a, a good data to go on is a, is a key thing. Facing the hot spots, you know, from all that we're learning, that's not really going to be, you know, really what they say is that we should really close, kind of shut down the United States for a couple of months because, you know, and we can see that people are kind of scrambling from place mm-hmm. to place, right? They they want to, you know, leave New York. I had a student just today send me an email. You know, her parents are concerned. She's in New York, so they're buying her a plane ticket, and now she's, uh, you know, she needs to go someplace else. People that are trying to, um, you know, drive up north or go to their summer places, hoping to... Uh, But What they do is, right, they don't, maybe they're not exhibiting symptoms, but maybe they do have the virus, so then they're just bringing that to the next place. Yeah. I would Um, like to say one other comment about the PPE, because, you know, it's it's, uh, something that's near and dear to my head, because, you know, I worked as a nurse um, many years ago in an ICU, although um, I can't really fathom what's going on now as far as the extent of having 9, 10, or 13 patients pass in one day. I mean, right. I've been at the bedside for those things when they've occurred, you know, um, on individual, like your patient may pass on a certain day, but you're not dealing with that volume of 10 people, 13 people in a given night. Right. So I am very focused on uh, you know, what's going on, the patients don't have family members at the bedside when this happens because they're not allowed to be in the hospital. Um, mm-hmm. and so nurses and doctors, you know, doctors are working around the clock. Nurses are working around the clock. They're calling them in for extra shifts. When these things happen, um, you know, nurses and doctors are trying to resuscitate patients and, you know... When you're trying to code a patient and perform CPA, that puts everybody at risk again. Right. If you look at, um, there's a very good documentary on, um, like a 30-minute documentary following doctors and nurses in Wuhan. You know, they have like hazmat suits going, right? They're right. all, um, you know, they're very protected. Right. So, uh, you know, having... Like- um, like what we mass. saw
1: with the Ebola crisis, that kind of thing.
2: Exactly. You know, and so that kind of protection, um, I would not go into a unit without uh, the N95 mask is is fitted for the patient. So, I'm sorry, it's fitted for the nurse or the doctor. It's a very close fit to the nose and the mouth. So it stops, you know, small particles from entering. Right your your nose and your throat. Those other surgical masks, you know, they're more, um, you know, they're more loosely placed on the face. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're not really blocking the particles. That that respirator, that N95 respirator, where you actually, when you work in a hospital, you have to be what they call fit tested for it. So they have to make sure that you know what size N95 mask is for you. So that if you were You know, prior to this happening, nurses were familiar with it because of having perhaps an occasional patient that had TB, where they would wear those special masks so that they would not inhale, um, you know, so they would not be at risk of contracting TB. Right. Right. We are coming really
1: close to the end here, and I wondered if each of you in, in maybe a minute or a little more could just share what would you like to see happening going forward? If you were, you know, uh, in charge of, of this whole thing, what would you like to see uh, uh, being in place or going forward? So, Dr. Yu, would you start?
3: Yes, I you know, I would probably quote what... Um, um, the team leader of the WHO China Joint Commission on COVID-19, um, Dr. Bruce Aylward, and what he said was that in order for us to replicate China's effective efforts elsewhere, it would re- actually require four things: speed, money, imagination, and political courage. And only by cooperating around the world can we defeat the con- common enemy, which is in this case the coronavirus. So, speed, money, imagination, political courage.
1: Wow! Yeah, that would be great. And Dr. Keating.
2: I think we need um, strong leaders. I think we need to have, um, you know, scientists and epidemiologists, people with uh, scientific backgrounds leading this fight. You know, I think we need to have strong leaders. I think Andrew Cuomo is, you know, the right leader, right place, you know, I I guess you would say at the right time for New York. Um, I, of course, can't wait for this be over and that I hope we won't this and I hope it doesn't happen again I hope next time we do cooperate around the world and we are prepared the next time because all uh, this kind of thing is going to be life-altering um, for many many people and we could have a whole other show again about the trauma that is going to be inflicted upon our key healthcare workforce because this exactly. is something. Um, that they're really never going to get
1: over. Yeah. I think uh, that, again, is something that's really maybe military people can more easily understand what it is that nurses, doctors, even um, uh, every area of hospitals, whether it's the housekeeping, the linen people, all of them are impacted by uh, knowing. Like, you know, they're talking about refrigerator trucks outside the hospitals that they're putting literally stacking bodies in, um, you know, you just wonder, not only were the family members not able to be there when their loved one passed, but just to know that they're stacked in a refrigerator truck somewhere and will they ever get get them back or be able to bury them, you know, all of those things must be very difficult. And for a nurse, every nurse, every doctor, every, you know, healthcare worker, has lost patients, and, and it's a devastating thing. And it usually happens once in a rare while, and maybe occasionally you might have a couple or three within a shorter period of time. Every time it's devastating. But to have every patient that is going through your care or half of the patients going through your care dying, it's uh, there's no way to recover from it. So on that point, anyway, I need to um, close this out here. So I, I especially wanted to thank both of you for coming on, and um, uh, perhaps in the future we could do something again. So I wanted to talk about, you know, patient lives are important, and healthcare workers' lives are equally important. If we don't have them, we not only lose the vast knowledge and experience that they have accumulated, but the caring compassionate humans, we need to care for us and and for themselves. So we must collaborate with China, Italy, South Korea and all countries who have learned about this virus the hard way and can shed light for our country. This is truly how the world has moved forward together following war, starvation and pestilence since the beginning of time. Collaboration and a win-win uh, effort. So let's bring it back out of mothballs and use it again in every area of our interactions together, talking together, listening to one another. We need to be scientific and we need to be open to all solutions in order to end the pandemic. We can't just look at inventing something new in a very short period of time. Oftentimes that doesn't work out very well. Uh, But looking at what do we already have? Uh, Dr. Yu was talking about some of the Eastern medicine, which has started to catch on much, much more in the United States. How do we combine the the medical model with um, uh, some of the other, um, uh, I'm forgetting the term right now, of um, uh, alternative medicine or complementary medicine? So we need to be, um, uh, I'm hoping that you will check out uh, my website, onceanurse.com for the new COVID Corner, sharing resources and support for healthcare workers. Uh, I just want to thank uh, everybody listening, everybody who's working out there on the front line. You are very much appreciated. And uh, my guests today, uh, that, that you were able to come and speak with us, uh, very, very important for us. So this has been Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing. And uh, my guests were Dr. Stason Keating, Professor of Nursing at New York University, Dr. Gary Yu, Epidemiologist at New York University. And our topic today was COVID-19 Epidemiology in a Nutshell and What Happens Now. Thank you very much.